This is the Right Now Podcast with Sarah Werner. Welcome back again this week, friends. I am so excited to be here with you today, and I am also extremely excited to have a very special guest. Today, we're going to be speaking with David S. Deer, who is the creator of A Ninth World Journal, which is a podcast, an audio drama that I think a lot of people are sleeping on. So David, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Well, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Sarah, for asking me to be here. Well, I just think you have such, in so many ways, you have such a wonderful voice. I could just, I could listen to you talk all day, but also your creative work has an incredible voice to it. And so I want to welcome you to the show today. And I would love to just start off, if you can give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain for your creative journey and what this has looked like for you. I can do that. For Ninth World Journal, it's, uh, I have to admit that I have borrowed and springboarded off of Monty Cook Games game. It's a role-playing game, tabletop-style role-playing game. And the world is so fantastic, and it, it fires up the Imaginarium so much that I thought, well, this would be fun to use to tell stories, to explore entire worlds. So that kind of took me to a Ninth World Journal using the idea of somebody who randomly teleports because that gives an opportunity to show so many disparate locations throughout the world and how varied and how crazy and chaotic and weird the world is. <laughs> so that's kind of why I use that template, the idea of a random jaunting. Very, very cool. Um, and what about you yourself as a creator? Like, what is your story? Where did you come from? Where are you going? Tell us all about you. <laughs> oh, that's, you know, maybe I can find out <laughs> where I'm going in this conversation. This will be discerning. <laughs> I'm just a, I more than a writer, I consider myself a storyteller mm. more than I do a writer. Writer is just one of the various mediums that I like to use to tell stories. I am also a musician in my early 20s, played in a band, and that's a form of storytelling. It is. Uh, <laughs> as you know, being a, a close to a musician. So there's the storytelling aspect and there's kind of a poetic aspect in songwriting, but I've all, I've written since I can remember, I've written fiction. I've written short. I always had a fondness for the short stories. Mm. Short stories seem really nice. You can kind of encapsulate a little snapshot of something within a kind of a more limited space than a novel. Yes. Never tried my hand at a novel, but so that this, the short stories writing has been just since I remember, and that segued into writing audio drama, which I've pulled my experience on stage and in theater for that, because I'd always wanted to venture into playwriting, and this is not quite the same as playwriting, but I think it's a cousin of it, a close cousin. So I feel like it's a good foray into kind of finding that way into telling stories in a playwright type format where you're using all dialogue. I mean, I cheat because I, a ninth world journal has a lot of narrative aspects mm -hmm. to it. But then again, when you, especially the first season's all narrative, but when you get into the second season, then there's more dialogue and it becomes 
more like a play would be written yeah, without so, stage directions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sound, sound directions, I guess there would be. Yeah. Sound directions and atmosphere directions. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about your background in theater and how that has affected how you write audio dramas today. Can you give us a little bit of background there too? Yes. Theater, you use a lot of the same rules, but you actually have to eliminate some of the rules because you don't have things, you have to translate something like sightlines in theater where they talk about everything you do, you have to make sure it's you're projecting your voice to the back of the auditorium. You have to make sure that you're, that everybody in the audience can see you at all times. So there's sightlines and you're not obstructing or upstaging or things like that. So there's differences that you have to translate into the audio medium where you have the visual elements on a stage to tell your story, you don't get that luxury in audio. So you have to, you have to use your words and descriptions to kind of, I would say that the one thing that theater and audio have in common is avoiding heavy subtext because then it undermines kind of the story and you're not giving the listeners or the audience the benefit of the doubt. Ooh, can you extrapolate on that? Okay. So in theater, you don't want to try to explain what's happening on stage so much that the audience doesn't get to do their work of, and they don't have the joy of being able to ascertain and discover what's happening. Like, for example, you may have somebody who's got kind of pretty selfish intentions and they and undermine people. So you don't want to be like the the Mr. Snidely twirling the mustache and <laughs> paint him as this villain because then the audience doesn't get to decide what kind of person they are and what their true motivations are. Mm-hmm. They've just said, oh, they're the villain and they've boxed them already. Mm-hmm. In a similar way in audio drama, You have to be careful of creating dialogue that explains things in a way that's unnatural for people. Like, for example, if you say, oh, why are you pointing that gun at me? (laughs) That's not usually your question when a gun is like staring you in the face. Usually you're going to react. So there's ways that you have to show that the person is pointing a gun at somebody without spelling it out for the listener. And that can be a little bit more tricky because you can lean on it on stage or in film where you can't in audio. How do you find your way around that? Do you just like try like, oh, maybe this will work or maybe this will work? Or how do you find your way? How do you navigate that? What what you said, you kind (laughs) of do this kind of like (laughs) trial and error. Once you write it, as you know, as a writer, you write something and then when you read it back, it's like, wait a minute. No, that's I know what I was intending to do, but it's not working. So it's that read back and that, f- and the read aloud and the, cause I'll often do that. I'll read aloud the dialogue and then you can feel if it's clumsy or if it's overstated or if you're putting too much subtext under it, that helps a tremendous amount mm-hmm. and kind of not trying to visualize it while you're reading it. I mean, because even though you're visualizing, you already have the picture in your head, but your listener has to build a picture as you're telling the story. Mm, I love that. I want to go back to, I want to couple that with something that you said a few seconds ago about the audience being engaged and actually not even just being engaged, but doing work. The audience putting together puzzle pieces and the audience actively playing a part in the story. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay. (laughs) In writing, like for example, a Ninth World Journal, 
I like the audience to be surprised. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's important that if the characters aren't truly surprised, then the audience won't be as surprised. Or, okay, so as far as writing process goes, a lot of writers will create entire backstories and things like that. Or they'll fill in the, they'll know what is going on all around them. In the protagonist of A Ninth World Journal, he is often lost and he often has no idea where he is, who he is, and who the people around him are. If I explore all those things, then it's harder for me to tell the story from Janue's point of view, mm. the protagonist, because I know so much and I'm, I'm personally me, I'm afraid that it's going to bleed into Janue and he won't have that, the blinders of the ignorance of his circumstances, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. And it's, I love this because, you know, so often storytellers of all kinds talk about audience engagement and they talk about it like it's this mystical, ununderstandable. That's not a word, but we'll go with it. It is now, right? It is now. It's, we just made a word, ununderstandable thing. <laughs> and I love the idea that like, oh, to be engaged is simply to be engaged, to take part in the story, to be solving it along with the main character. And it's really, really fun. I love the sort of fish out of water kind of premise. Does that ever get old for you? Or is that something you continually enjoy coming back to? I like coming back to it. I really do. The Stranger in the Strange Line, the fish out of water, because I think there's a, as writers, we love or we try to give our characters some kind of growth and some kind of arc or just personal I don't want to say development, but personal discovery, I guess, maybe. And those scenarios give, I think, the richest opportunity for that. What do you hope that people will take away from your show? Surprise, wonder, Mm. definitely wonder. And for just to paint a little bit of a picture for people not familiar with the show, it, it takes place a billion years in the future And all these civilizations have ravaged the world and left behind all these super bizarre and strange things that have twisted kind of the laws of nature and reality as we know it. So there's a lot of heavy lifting that you have to do in this because things that are kind of push the imagination have to be told in a way where people can kind of visualize a world that is nearly incomprehensible. So what I hope for is for people to be able to feel and see and visualize a world so strange and bizarre and having to survive and make your way in it. Even as people who aren't jaunting all over the place like this guy is for just the everyday person who's living in a town where the weather can have green rain that makes plants disintegrate. (laughs) Just for people to, to be able to put themselves there and find the wonder and strangeness in it. Is that what you like most about stories yourself? Some. (laughs) Tell me more about what you look for and what you love about a good story. Oh, I love a story that can punch me in the chest and just make me feel the feels and put me on the verge of an ugly cry. Mm. I love, I love stories to make me feel and it could be just elation or it could be devastation. Not horrific per se. But just the human condition magnified to the point where you just, you ache for that person or you just 
<laughs> you just break down with so much, whatever that big emotion is. I love stories that do that, which I don't tend to tell stories that do that. Why is that? Like what? So I don't know how to phrase this other than, you know, why don't you break people with the stories that you write and tell? And is there, what keeps you from doing that? Well, okay. I have to back that up okay, because okay. <laughs> I've gotten feedback in this show and the other audio drama and, and in other things where people have said, oh, they, oh, they, you know, took their breath away, but I didn't feel, I felt some of that as writing it. And I certainly like in Ninth World Journal, there are scenes I've certainly been on the edge of tears as the character Janue, but I'm not going for that necessarily. Mm. It's just a circumstance. And I kind of felt the moment and I just wrote it that way. But it just emerged that way. So it kind of surprised me. I guess maybe to answer your question, I'm afraid that to write with the intention of like breaking somebody's heart is going to make it feel contrived and forced. Mm. Not that that's true, but for me, that's the way it feels. So I just write it. And if it if it turns out that way. It does. And if it doesn't, then it's it's just a, it's a different kind of story. Absolutely. That really reminds me of a similar fear that I faced. I was in a writing class in college and I wrote this thing that was like really like overwrought and I thought creepy and cool and scary. And I read it out loud in this creative writing class. And like the first comment I got was like, wow, that's really melodramatic. And I was like, Oh, and so now it's like, I, I also sort of like distance myself from having it sound melodramatic or contrived. How do you put genuine emotion in there? And before I think the word that you you used was it just sort of appears or just sort of crops up while you're writing. I guess I'm asking where, where does that come from? The genuine emotion that can be built into it? Mm -hmm. I think what makes a big difference is having a framework of who that character is, mm -hmm. what their values are and their motivation is. And a lot of times that when I find scenes like that come up in what I'm writing, it's because they've, whatever their value system is, it's been massively challenged and it's not challenged it's not written to challenge them as a mechanic. It's written to challenge them as a, as just, you know, part of the story. I don't know. I feel like I'm not quite explaining it right. So if this is their journey, this is the character's journey. And in their journey, they come across things that will challenge how they perceive life as they know it and who they are in the world. And when it gets really big and they're massively challenged, then it, I believe it creates those things. But as a writer, I have to know who that character is or who they're becoming or who they think they're trying to become. So that's where I think it starts from. I really, really love that. Yeah, letting it arise naturally from the character's journey and the conflicts that arise because of the character's value system. I love how you put that. Oh, I love that. I love that a lot. Oh, that's wonderful. Sorry, I'm just like digesting that for a second. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, go ahead. Digest. But I, I had a question I wanted to ask you about with the writing thing. Yeah. When you're in the creative writing course and then somebody said it was melodramatic, was that just one individual or was it a full consensus? Or Oh, 
that is, oh, that's such a good question because it was one person, but I took it to mean every, I took it to be representative of every person in the entire universe, which is the danger of just accepting criticism without question or without understanding why they're criticized. Like I just heard the word melodrama and I like took a step back and yeah. Have you ever received criticism like that or done something like that? Yes. Yes. It wasn't in a creative writing, but it was in a character portrayal and it was, it was a newspaper article that said it was the words were broadly forced. What? My, the character I played, which actually it was a raisin in the sun and it was, was Walter, Walter Lee. Yeah. And that my performance was broadly forced. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was devastated, but you know, years later I'm like, Ooh, yeah, I guess it was broadly forced. (laughs) I got it. What did you do with that information at the time? Like it sounds like you said you were devastated. Like what did you do with that information? I, I think I just ground my teeth. I was just, because I didn't, I saw it as, as, uh, just kind of an attack or a jab, but I didn't understand where it was coming from. So I took it very personally Mm. and I didn't do it to answer your question. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't do anything, but just kind of put my head down and push through and perform the way I had been performing and saying, how dare that person say that was broadly forced. And, you know, 10 years later, I was like, Ooh, that was a broadly forced performance. But at the time I didn't understand the mechanics of acting. So I was just doing what I thought I needed to do. And I didn't have the luxury of good directors that could coach me and teach me and sh- give me tools to make a difference. I mean, my acting's still a little broadly forced at times, so. <laughs> but now I'm like, okay, that's just part of my, my thing. <laughs> Interesting. Oh my gosh. It can be really hurtful. Those, those terms, like, you know, you say the terms broadly forced and I can, I can feel the feeling that's behind that. And I can feel that there's some, some, a lot of pain there and how hard it is for us to, to let some of those things go. Yeah. Well, I want to ask all of these questions about, I think you're really the, f- one of the first actors that I've had on the show. I've talked with other like audio drama creators who act in their show, but you've also had stage experience I'm curious, you know, and earlier you were talking about being a storyteller and just appreciating all of these different genres, stage and audio and short story. And I'm trying to think of something like smart to ask you that brings that all together. Do you think of the creative process as being embodied in all of those things? And what does the creative process look like for you? First, do I see them embodied in all those things? Yeah, definitely. There, you just you draw on different tools. Yeah, but even though you're drawing on different tools, there are common threads between each of those things. And some people can just wield some more effectively than others, but they definitely kind of draw from a similar tool set. The execution might vary a little bit based on the talents or how far you dive into the medium of choice or whatever. And what was the second one? The second one is what is your own process? Like I'm just fascinated by different creators and that can be 
I'm going to equate storytelling and creativity, but I don't know if that works, but I'm going to try for that. I would just love to hear about your, yeah, your creative or storytelling process and what that looks like for you. Okay. When the story, as it does for most of us, just comes from a kernel and idea, there's just something you're like, well, what if an example is the other show that Shannon Perry and I co-creating, co-produced, you had an appearance in Deconstructive Criticism. Yeah. That started from me listening to a podcast, I will leave unnamed, where there was a couple just, there. it's just one of those conversational couple on a particular topic podcasts. And they were very, you know, they were pretty civil, da, da, da. but I could feel in the background that the couple must have had an argument before they started, but it didn't, it wasn't apparent in their podcast. And I thought, what if we got to hear the recording that they edited out all their arguments (laughs) and that became the show? So it's always those, what if this happened or what if that kind of happened? So you have that kernel to start with. Then you always talk about the pantsers versus the planners. (laughs) And (laughs) I consider myself a planter. Because I I start with this idea and then I just start writing and let the story flow out. And then ideas will come from way back or that'll take me, you know, begin with the end in mind. I I will admit to not doing that. (laughs) I have no idea what any of my endings are. Yeah. Oh, I have no idea at the start what any, I have to find my way to the ending. As a writer, me personally, and this talks about some of the, this touches on what we talked about a little bit earlier. For me to write without an end in mind, I find that as the story develops, because I don't know where it's going, most of us go through life and we have, we say, okay, this is my goal, or we may or may not have a goal. But if we have a goal, we still are surprised on our way to that goal. Or if we don't have a goal, we're just constantly surprised. (laughs) I think that the audience or the listeners or the readers as we're surprised in them, we surprise ourselves as we're writing or creating this, it come, it injects itself into the story that we're telling. And then the readers are also surprised along the way. And I think that's fun and delightful. And then in the, in the creative process, there's part of me that kind of like tries to do that. I'm going to use every part of the bison kind of thing. <laughs> I, I mean, not to the whole Chekhov's gun thing, but but so much as like I've written something and then I threw that in there. So then several episodes later or however far into the story later, oh, I'm going to use that. And then when you do it, the listener, you bet, goes, wow, they're really clever to figure out how to make that happen. And we're like, we really weren't. We just said, let's make this work. And it looks really good. <laughs> Clever. Okay, I'm giving away inside. Oh, no, I'm the same way. Nope. Oh, I appreciate that. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Yeah, do you find, um, so being, I like that, being a planter. Do you find that, so, you know, you're, you're happily typing out your story and you're surprising yourself every now and then. Do you have to do a lot of rewrites? Like, do you have to go back and say, oh, now I have to, like, redo this beginning part? Do you do that too? Okay. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? <laughs> it's kind of, it's a grind until you find where you meant to go. Um, like I've got the, there's an outline for 
I just finished season four and I did the outline for season four and I say, okay, this is what's going to happen in each of these episodes until we get to the end of season four. And I had trouble getting to the end of season four. And then those last four, cause there's 11 episodes in the season, the last four, I took them and I said, and I had this idea written out. And I remember going back and saying, oh, here's my outline. And that's not really how it went. Cause I was writing it, writing it, writing it, writing it. And then something popped into my head that said, what about this instead? And threw out all of that and pursued that storyline. And you want that to be there right out of the gate. I know. And it never is, or it sometimes isn't. And so you, you're like, I guess I just have to push through and keep writing. And sometimes it's like something out there goes, you need to write the non-working version to get to the working version, even if they're not related. <laughs> How do you feel about that? You know, you talk about using every part of the bison. Do you ever just really hate tearing out words or scenes or paragraphs that don't work? And then do you do you try to reinsert those somewhere else or try to use those? Or tell tell me a little bit more about using the parts that get cut out. Yes, I do try to use them because there's something so tasty in this. And I'm dealing with this with writing season five right now. There's this thing that I wanted to put in season four. It just didn't work. I couldn't make it fit. And now I'm wanting to use it in season five. And I'm going, I really want to use this, but it's really problematic. It's mm. doing that. The audience will go, how did they get there? This doesn't, it kind of forced itself into this story. And so it's how to do that. And sometimes you have to leave things on the table. Sometimes you have to leave bits for the buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good metaphor. <laughs> but yeah, it's. You can't always use every piece, but sometimes you find a piece that you didn't think you were going to use and you're like, oh, and those are the fun moments. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I want to go back to something that you you briefly touched upon, and I had to write this down as soon as you said it because it's something that I struggle with. And you said, it's a grind until you get to what you're looking for. How How do you deal with getting through the grind when you are in a place where it is not fun? What do, what do you do uh, to motivate yourself? Oh, goodness. That is a really good question. <laughs> there, it, it's, it's, a, it's bittersweet because mm. there's a point where you feel like you have to kind of like put it down, but you can't. And you just keep chewing over and over and over again. And I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know if that piece that gets found is because I put it down or not. I don't know. I want to know because <laughs> yeah, because then it, then I can say, all right, David, you know, this is what you did. So let's do that again. But I think it's, there's also a piece of piece where I have to accept that something is not going to work, Ooh. but that's not easy to recognize because you fall in love with a concept or a, or a bit or a little subplot and you're like, this is, this delights me. So there's no reason it shouldn't be in this story because delight is all part of it. Right. <laughs> so you, you can don't see me over here writing again. <laughs> <laughs> now I have a question for you because yeah. you're talking about writing there. What is your note taking versus non cerebral or your literal note taking versus cerebral note taking in your process? What is that? 
what's the weight on that? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> my, okay. So my memory is terrible. And I also have a huge scarcity mindset when it comes to ideas. And so there's always this fear that if I don't write down absolutely everything into a notebook or onto a sheet of paper, that it will be gone forever and I will never get a good idea ever again. And that's kind of the mindset that, that follows me around as much as I don't want it to and as much as I don't like it. And so for me, you know, I carry around, our listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but this is my planning pad for season two of Girl in Space. It's like this giant actuary. I don't, I can't even fit the whole thing in the screen, but it's like, I just, I have to write absolutely everything down and I'm scared that if I don't, it'll all go away. Um, wow. Cause you know, it's, it's based on like, you know, you wake up at 3am, you have a great idea to like solve this giant plot hole. You're like, great. That's so good. There's no way I will ever forget it. You go back to sleep, you wake up and all you wake up with is the feeling that you had a great idea and now it's gone. Mm, mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is, if this is answering your question, but I have to write as much down as I possibly can, which also means that there's a lot that I write down that doesn't get used. But again, I, I, I do feel like those, uh, the pieces for the buzzards, I love that you called it that, those pieces still serve a purpose. Yes. Even just in having been put down on paper, even in just existing, because they're, they're steps along the way, they're steps on the path. Even if you don't go back and dig those steps out of the ground to like completely change the metaphor, you know, you still stepped on them and they still had the, their usefulness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a, like if you're talking about a character arc, for example, it's like the path never taken. Like for us personally, we're like, well, what if I took that train the other day? Or what if I followed the boy or the girl or whomever to that other state or country? And I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your life is, your life is comprised. It's like, you know, the whole thing about a song is comprised of the notes that are there and the notes that are missing. Oh, I've not heard that. Oh, oh yeah. There's this, I don't know what reference it is, but they often say that a piece of music not only consists of the notes that are there, but the notes that are, that are left out are not part of the piece. It sounds a little, it might be a little. This is like blowing my mind right now. Cerebral. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about what's not there. Okay. And well, if you don't want to answer any of these questions, no, you no, can be like, let's that. move on. But I'm no. so curious. It goes right back to what you're talking about, though, writing those ideas down and having them be on the paper. But it's like we're a result of the choices we make and the choices we didn't make. Mm. Because the choice we make, the choice we didn't make is part of the choice we make. Because... We might, sometimes we're motivated to make a choice because that's where we want to go. We're also sometimes motivated to make a choice because we don't want to go in that direction, the other direction. So it's the avoiding of that particular other direction that influences this particular direction that we've taken or choice that we've made. I think this is such an interesting concept, especially when you pair it with the fact that John Uway has no control over his jaws. (laughs) Like that says so much to me. Yeah. And, and his choices are not his own when the jaunts happen. And that leaves a lot of 
because that, yeah, I'm glad you said that because he gets to a place. He tries to figure out how to survive and how to coordinate and how to navigate. Once he starts getting a rhythm, and sometimes it's, you know, weeks, sometimes it's days. It, it doesn't matter, but some he gets that rhythm right when he's getting that rhythm, boom, he's whisked away and he's off somewhere else and he has to start all over again. But he doesn't really start all over again because the ex- events that happen, he brings with him to influence the decisions he makes in the next place, whether they're overt, whether they're subconscious or whether they're just kind of a, a resume of experience they're still kind of there to some degree or another. Oh, just like personally, this is very comforting. (laughs) I don't know. It can be so like we were just talking about, it can be so overwhelming to look at all of the paths not taken in life and to just live the rest of your life regretting, you know, everything that could have been. But, you know, the idea of John Yue learning as he goes and just dealing with his uncontrollable jaunting and taking his own lessons with him. That's there's something just really, really beautiful about that right now. Mm, no, I'm uh, so yeah. glad for that. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. This fact that like no idea is ever wasted. No season is ever wasted. No step is ever wasted because they're all taking you toward yourself. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I don't know how tangential this is, but do you have the struggle that I have that I want to do all the things and I feel like I, when I die, there'll be too many things that I didn't get to do This is or create or yes. whatever. Oh my gosh. And it's okay. This is really funny because the next word I had down here um, on my little notepad was struggle. And I was going to ask, what do you struggle with most as a creator? So I don't know if this is what you struggle with most, but I think this is a great topic because heck yes, I live in constant fear that like, I'm going to die tomorrow. And like, there's all these things I didn't do. And there's all these things I didn't write. And it just frustrates the heck out of me, mm-hmm. you know, that we only get one life. And it frustrates the heck out of me that it takes so long to create something when I want to create 700 somethings. And, mm-hmm. you know, earlier you said, like, um, you know, you love writing short stories and you haven't yet tried a novel. And, like, the idea of a project that large taking so much time and energy is just very frustrating because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, I, I could write like 9,000 short stories and the amount of time it takes to write one novel. Right. Tell me about your struggle with this. If that, if that's something that you, if that's something that you struggle with. Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. There's, I, I have a love of the audio drama and podcasting, but I have a concept for a nonfiction book in my head. And then there's other things that are just creative that n- don't necessarily fit in those, those boxes. But if I tried to do all of those at once, am I not giving enough of myself to any of those one endeavors at that time to really enrich it, to make it, to give it all the value and all the weight that I can? And the second part is, let's see if I can remember what the second part of it was. I can't remember it, but you and I, our birthdays are three days apart and we're Gemini's. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We like having all those like several eggs in the basket and and several juggling components. So maybe we're going full circle that Mm. one creative endeavor will feed the other creative endeavor. I want to believe that (laughs) because it gives me license to, oh, I remember the other pieces that I'm a whittler by nature. Oh, tell me. 
Okay. Like of wood or of ideas? Of I of projects. Tell me more. And ideas. I there are some people that they get the project and they work on it start to finish and they have no they feel like they have no right to work on anything else until this is done. Uh-huh. I can't do that. Uh-huh. I need this constant something else for a while and then come back to it. And like decrit is about a family and they're every day and they exist here in the modern world and there's nothing abstract about what they do. It's, it's comedy. It's, it's, it's fun and it's silliness and it's bickering. This is high sci-fi audio drama on the other side, a billion years in the future. So some people would be like, well, how can you jump to one and then the other and take your brain out of that? Because you're not really committing yourself to a process. For me, that is a process. Mm. I can break away from that one, let it digest and let the kind of let it marinate while I work on the other piece. Once the other piece is kind of rolling, kind of go back to that or another and kind of jump bounce between them. And I'm going to convince myself that 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 one piece is serving the process of the other. I'm so grateful that you brought this up because I've been thinking about this a long time. I don't know if you ever get a chance to speak with uh, Marguerite Croft from Point Mystic, but I got to interview her several weeks ago. And she and I, even in some of our private conversations, have been talking about how important it is to have a secondary project going Mm. for exactly the same reasons that you're talking about. But I, what I hadn't thought of before was your point that you know, am I taking, am I, am I robbing this, this project or this project of my a hundred percent, you know, focus and dedication by, you know, essentially multitasking. Mm-hmm. And this is, oh, this is so fascinating to me. And I don't know, I think that that might be down to uh, each individual creator. Mm-hmm. I think I'm like you. I think I need to have multiple things to focus on because I can run myself into the ground working on girl in space and just really obsess about that to a point where it's not healthy. And Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. There's a lot of permission that comes with that. Ooh, tell me more about that. Well, like I think of girl in space and I think of Shannon Mm -hmm. of uh, Oz nine she was kind of deliberating with Oz nine because they just finished their season three finale. And she's like, well, do we just keep plowing through? How much of a break do I take? And her fear was, are people, am I going to lose people because I've going to have been down so long. And I said, absolutely not. And this is the same thing I would say about girl in space is that I have such a love for Oz nine. Well, being in it helped. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> being a part of but it, yeah. Before, I mean, it was on a long time before I, I hopped on and I was in love with it from day one. Same. The same with Girl in Space, in love with it from day one. And it's to me, it's kind of like you do what you do when the next season of Oz 9 comes back, when the next season of Girl in Space comes back, I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, I there's no time passed in between because if something's that good. If it's that good and you fall in love with it, you just wait. You mm-hmm. wait for it to come back around. Well, not wait like a watch pot wait, but <laughs> but like uh, you're just like, yeah, I will be here when it comes back around because I have so so much love and reverence for whatever it is you're doing. You know, like uh, and interestingly, I think it's manifested itself in in the way television series are done. Do you remember in the old days it was just like 
well, this this show's on, and now it's summertime, and now the next season starts, and there's 22 episodes. Now, you can have ep- eight episodes, two years has gone by, and then they're doing the next season, and people are, are if that didn't work, they wouldn't still be doing it. I appreciate that insight so much, because my fear is very similar to Shannon's. And if you guys haven't listened to Oz 9 yet, I'm going to put links to all of these amazing shows in the show notes for today's episode. Please do check out these beautifully crafted shows. They are well worth your time. And it's like not exactly an unfounded fear. Like I took a a long hiatus from the Right Now podcast and saw a dip in my download numbers. And I took a unintentional long hiatus from Girl in Space. And well, I haven't really season two yet because I'm still writing it. So I don't know if I'm going to see, you know, a dip in those numbers, but I'm scared that I will. But, you know, what else can we do but keep creating, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I get that fear. That is a legitimate fear. I think for anybody taking any length of break, I have that. I don't know when I'm going to go into season five, and I have that same fear. I just, I really can't help but believe there are casual listeners and there are loyal listeners. And the casual listeners, I don't want to be disingenuous because I don't want to completely say that it's really the loyal listeners that, I'm after mm. because I want the casual yeah, listeners we too. Like those I numbers. really do. And I don't want to say, well, you know what? If if you don't want to listen to the next season because you, I waited too long to talk to. I'm not going to say that, but at the same time, it's the loyal listeners that just though they fill my heart so much. They really do, and you're like, they get why we pour ourselves into these projects, and they, yeah, their love for reading or hearing or listening or watching is the same as, or just as in, intent as intense as our love for the creating process of it. So yeah, they're going to be fewer than your casuals, Yeah, but then the casuals will come and then more casuals will come in to replace those. So easy come, easy go. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, now Sarah, I'm going to tell you that I tell, these are just self-talk things that okay. I tell myself these constantly Okay. because the fears just keep coming up mm-hmm. and I know they're never going to go away, but I know that if I If I'm at least honest with myself about my fears and I'm honest with myself about, and I'm, well, genuine about the self-talk, it's like, you know, I'm not sitting there saying, you can do it when you know that your heart's going to burst out of your chest because the hill's too long and you can't get to the top. And then you have no business trying because your (laughs) knees are giving out. It's not like that. It's more like, yeah, I I see the truth in what you're saying and I'm going to bring it up myself because our fears will often bury those those truths that we kind of have to tell ourselves. It's a How process. do you unearth the truths from your fears? How do you how do you go about that? Is it just repeating affirmations or what what is that? It's just a kind of a I am a eternal optimist and there's just low thread of optimism that just kind of stays there mm-hmm. even when I'm like if something feels like a push through or why am I even going to bother continuing kind of thing, there's this thing that says you will find the fulfillment if you do it, even if the results are different than what you think they're going to be. Just that doing of it will, it'll, it'll manifest more than you think it will. It's just, yeah, that's just kind of the way I do that is preserve that little. Thank you for sharing that. I, needed to hear that today. And I think probably 
I'm going to bet that a lot of our listeners needed to hear that as well. Writing is so challenging and it's so, it can be lonely. Yeah. It's such an isolatory process. And I think that's kind of why I'm so craving uh, starting the next, because Shannon and I are about to, I think today we're going to start talking about season two of Decrit. And I'm so hungry for that because Ninth World Journal is not only lonely because the protagonist is just lonely because of his circumstance, but the process of creating is lonely when you you're the one you bounce your ideas off of. And when you don't trust the ideas you come up with, you're like, well, then how can I bounce ideas off of you if your ideas aren't working, dude? <laughs> so yeah, it's, I feel for all of our writer compatriots out there because it happens. It's, it crops up time and time again. And so I just try to find these tools to, to just overcome those because sometimes they just feel like these giant giant weights these just it's a sisyphean kind of thing oh my gosh it absolutely is it absolutely is i am so grateful for everything that you are saying today like this is so beautiful and so perfect and so necessary just breaking these concepts down with you is just such a joy so, you know, we were talking a little bit about the struggle of, you know, do I take on a second project? Is that the biggest thing that you're struggling with right now as a storyteller? Or, or what would you say is the biggest thing that you're struggling with as a storyteller today? To be completely honest, it's the same struggle I have every season. And is that, oh, this is going to be my sophomore slump. Oh, <laughs> tell me absolutely everything about this. Okay. <laughs> Season one was just, I just threw it out there and blah, blah, blah. And people appreciated it. And then season two, I said, I'm going to try something different going from the narrative to the dialogue based with actors, other actors. And it, it kind of reminds me of the shift between like Girl in Space episode one. And then as the season went, it's same kind of thing, you know, and people were very appreciative of it and they loved it. And then I was like, oh, well, now I'm going to have to try to keep up with that in season three. And people love that. And then season four, I'm like, oh, now I'm going to have to keep up with that. And I introduced this strange mechanic. And I, and in each of those, not only that, I took some kind of risk that I went, I don't know if people are going to like that I'm doing this. Mm. And now <laughs> in season five, I don't feel like I have that risk to take that really pushes me. So I'm like, well, where is it? How come I can't find it? And now is this just going to be uh, me telling stories to fill the gap be before the final season? Well, I'm you, really, yeah. now I'm, I feel like I come and Jackie's like, oh, well you, you'll come up with something. You write something great. You always do. And I'm like, yeah, but this time. <laughs> yeah. But what if this time I don't, right? What right. if, right? Oh, I, uh, David, oh my gosh. Uh, is that something that you uh -huh. fight and battle? It's something that, so I've been, <laughs> I've been writing Girl in Space season two since 2019. Hmm. So that. Pandemic. Yeah. Use that. You, you got that excuse <laughs> built in. <laughs> it's what's kept me back. And oh, so for context, the, we're recording this in July of 2021, which is like two years later. And I'm still writing this thing. And it's just 
No, I am so horrified that people are not going to like season two and that season one was a fluke and that because I did exactly the same thing that you did. I just dove in and made something fun for season one. And with season two, I'm trying to plan and it's just so different. But yeah, the sophomore slump is a phrase that like strikes fear into my heart. And Mm -hmm. with all the work that I'm putting into season two, you know, it's, it's a little horrifying that I might be doing all this work just to create something that's lesser. And then I start to think, well, you know, what if I only ever create things that are lesser ever again? What if I've peaked? What if my best work is behind me? And then, you know, we get into that snowball and start rolling down the the mountain and that's, that's no good. So I want to hear, yes, I want to hear more about your thoughts on this. Well, I'm thinking of like, for Girl in Space, do you have any episodes of Girl in Space that you say, eh, that was eh, an okay episode, wasn't my favorite? I don't know that I did my best work, but it really served a good purpose for the whole arc of the season. In season one or season two? Season one. Season one, yes. <laughs> Many of them. <laughs> okay. So I think of, and I'm just now thinking of this. This is not me going, well, I go back to this every time. We, I think everybody has what I call the, for musicians, when the studio wants you to come up with an album and you got to come up with either this many songs or this length and you, you're like, I got, I got to get one more song in there. (laughs) So you just write a song, you put it in there, you've met your quota. Storytelling is a little different because it's not like that, but sometimes you have to have a piece that bridges Mm. events, but you can't go from event C to event D because, well, I should say you can't go from event C to event E because D seems like it's superficial, Yep, but it's critical. Yep. And sometimes that's our, and this is my fear for the next season um, that I'm going to write, is sometimes that it's a functional thing, but to me, it's more frightening to make a whole season like that than a, just an episode like oh. that. And I'm nervous about that. I'm like, I need to build five to create the final season of this show and five may be more functional to kind of bridge that gap. And I'm like, does that mean it's not going to, it's going to be more utilitarian than it is going to be interesting or exciting. That's my fear. And I don't have an answer for you on that, on how I'm going to get past that. I don't either. I feel like I could probably like make something up that would sound pretty convincing. Like, oh, just do this. Or, but like, <laughs> I, I also don't have an answer for you. I think that all we have is just moving forward. Mm. And I, I think that the beautiful and wise Jordan Cobb, who creates Primordial Deep and several other amazing shows, mm-hmm. called me out on something that I was doing the other day. And because I was stopping myself before I even started because I was so afraid of creating something that was subpar. And she made me realize that we have a choice and we can either stop or we can go. And when we go, when we move forward, when we create, you know, we do run the risk of what we create, not being good or not being up to our standards or, being, you know, less than we hoped it would, would be, you know, but if, if we stop, then we don't create anything at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and all, it, yeah. she's, I mean, her point is, is absolutely valid that you have to 
you have to keep writing, you have to keep creating. And the, it's very, very difficult for us to, to give ourselves permission to create something that we're not wowed by. It's, but that's really challenging, mm-hmm. mm. you know? Because um, I'm like you, I, I want wonder, you know, I want surprise, mm-hmm. I want discovery, and we don't always get that. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of how you find it. and Because at the same time, I don't want to sit there and say everybody should just settle on right. what they consider their meh work. Yeah. No, that's... But I, I refer back to, and I bring Shannon up a lot, probably because I absolutely adore her. And oh, yes. She, <laughs> I listened to her partner, Richard, talk about how uh, she'll be writing stuff and she'll just crack herself up while writing. And I'm like, okay, that's, then that's it right there. Yeah. But see, now here's the thing is even after she's been cracking herself up and writing, then she'll put the whole thing out and throw it out there and go, oh, I hope this works. I hope this is good. I don't know if it is. Mm -hmm. But yet through that process, she found so much delight and joy in it. But once it was done, the moment passed and that's when the fears set in. So I keep having to use the Shannon example of laughing at your writing as if I'm creating it and something's tickling me in it at the time of creating it, then I need to have faith that mm-hmm. if it resonated with me, it's going to resonate with other people. Absolutely. Well, I I think a few minutes ago we were talking and you brought up very briefly the idea of trusting yourself and trusting your ideas. And I wonder if this is just building the case of necessity for learning to trust ourselves and learning to trust our ideas. Mm -hmm. What validates that trust though? outside opinion and do we want it to be outside opinion like do we want to <laughs> yeah. look at our ratings be like okay five star five star okay four star okay you know okay i'm doing okay and i and that is going to become my identity this thing that you know internet strangers have projected onto me right like is is that is that it is that what we want that is the biggest paradoxical conundrum <laughs> i i think seriously and i i grapple with this because I say, well, you know what? I'm creating this because I, I love to create and I'm putting it out there and people who enjoy it, enjoy it, you know, but I, if I'm completely honest, I want people to fall in love with what I create. I really do. And I can tell myself all day long, well, you know, it's really about the process. And as long as I'm enjoying it, blah, blah, blah. But you know, if there's dips or if there's negative feedback of sorts, I'm going to sit there and go, well, then why am I putting so much hard work into this if I'm the only, you know, if I'm I'm my only biggest fan or whatever? And so, you know, where how do you get to the point where it's not all for you and you can dismiss what people say, good or bad or indifferent, mm-hmm. versus being completely genuine that I want, you know, I want roses thrown at my feet when the thing is done. <laughs> And being honest that, yes, I do want that. Oh, that's such a good question. And it's a question I don't have the answer to. And I'm curious, those of you who are listening, I want to hear your thoughts about this very issue. I want want to know what you're thinking. So if you go to the show notes for this episode and you scroll down to the comments, let us know. What do you think about this? What validates you as a storyteller? 
And I mean, is there one thing? Is it a mixture like, oh, 75% of it is self-validation and 25% of it is the audience? Or, you know, is there a mathematical balance? Is there some kind of alchemy at work? I want to know because I don't, I don't think I know. I don't either. <laughs> I would love to know. I'd love to find that. Yeah. I feel like there'd be peace if I could find that, but I don't know if that's really true. I just don't know. It's a big struggle. And maybe it's one of those things that we're not allowed to know, or, you know, maybe it's one of those things that nobody has ever known. And we just have to make our peace with not knowing and just create anyway. But I don't know. Uh, So if you're listening and you have an answer for us, that's awesome. And I want you to let us know in the comments. But yeah, that, oh, that's so wonderful to think about. And I think I'd like that to be a lingering question. I want to ask David, where can people find you online? Where can they find your work? How can they connect with you? And I'll make sure to put links in the show notes for this episode, but I want to hear it from you as well. You can find my main website, which contains uh, audio drama stuff and uh, audiobook narration that I've done at davidsdeer.com. That's dear, like writing a letter to somebody, dear so-and-so. The Ninth World Journal is at ninthworldjournal.com. Decrit Podcast, which at least I don't appear in that yet. That's pretty much just just writing right now, co-writing with Shannon, is at decritpodcast.com. And all each of those has a Twitter account. So David S. Deer, the number 9th, Ninth World Journal and Decrypt Podcast. All three are on Twitter. And my activity on there kind of goes and comes. <laughs> it waxes and wanes. That's absolutely fine. But absolutely I, I check it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 good. Please do listen to A Ninth World Journal and Deconstructive Criticism and check out David's website. Oh, this conversation, like not to be too selfish about it, but this is like exactly what I needed today. So thank you. And I think a lot um, of listeners are going to have the same the same feeling about this. So, David, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence today. Well, thank you for having me. Anytime I get to talk to you is a delight. It's a treat. It's an honor. It really is. I mean that. Thank you. I mean that 100. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you so much. Wonderful. All right, friends. I will see you next week. And until then, happy creating and happy storytelling.